Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of KK Side Presents. My name is Jack Gornick, and I am uh, back for, I think, the fourth time now at this point. Uh, I am a member of the National Nominations Committee for this biennium, and I am the immediate past North Central District President. Uh, today, I am joined by our third candidate for Board of Trustees. Uh, he has previously served as the Alumni Association Board of Directors Chair, uh, and he's from the Northeast District. Danny Miller, welcome to KKSI Presents. Thank you, Jack. I'm excited to talk with you today. Awesome. So normally I start by asking you to introduce yourself personally and professionally, but I, I'm going to, I'm actually going to do that for a little bit for you. Cause I have some questions just right off the start. <laughs> um, so is it true that you got five undergrad degrees in six years from West Virginia in somewhat unrelated things? Uh, and if so, I don't know if the most appropriate question is why or how, or do you just kill it at trivia night? <laughs> <laughs> well, those are all legitimate questions. So, uh, yes, I did graduate from West Virginia University with five undergrad degrees in six years. So um, I started out uh, at WVU planning to go to medical school. Um, part of that's just kind of my upbringing. My mom was a med tech. So um, growing up in Southern West Virginia, most of the people I knew that had gone to college were either teachers or worked in the hospital where my mom worked. Mm -hmm. And I knew I, I, education was not gonna be my calling, right? So I figured, why don't I go to medical school and become a doctor? And that seemed really appealing. So I started out as a biology major, right? And as I started taking more classes, my interests expanded. So I took some history of science courses and that led to adding a history major. And then I took some geography classes, particularly related to human and cultural geography and geographic information systems, which are now in every computing device we own. Um, so I added that and you know, I added the English major and then the liberal arts and sciences major when I took some philosophy and epistemology courses. And they all just sort of came together. And um, it was kind of made a bit of a big deal when I graduated. I joked to people that I, I made the paper and beat out the two-headed goat that day um, or whatever. But uh, yeah, yeah, I did end up with the five degrees from WVU. I loved college. I, I love learning. You know, and I think that informs still what I do as an attorney. Um, after WVU, I took uh, after graduating as an undergraduate, I took a year to study some graduate level coursework in public administration and literary critical theory. And then I went to law school and graduated from UVA with a law degree, University of Virginia. Mm -hmm. And then that leads you then to your professional practice now. Uh, right, right. Can all gates script? That's right. So uh, after law school, my wife and I moved to Pittsburgh. She uh, grew up in Pittsburgh, and I joined the firm of Can L. Gates. Uh, actually, when I joined, it was still known as Kirkpatrick and Lockhart Nicholson Graham, but we merged with a firm out of Seattle named Preston Gates and Ellis, and the Gates is Bill Gates's dad. So okay. now we're known as Can L. Gates. Um, we're one of the largest law firms on earth. We have offices really on every populated continent uh, with the exception of Africa for right now. Uh, and I get to work with amazing people across uh, the country and around the world to help resolve legal disputes 
and to help our clients with issues related to data privacy, records management, and the need to exchange documents as part of those legal disputes. Um, I'm one of five partners in my particular practice group, which is called EDAT or eDiscovery Analysis and Technology. So what we do is support our clients that are in the midst of legal disputes, whether they're litigation, arbitration, uh, congressional inquiries, internal investigations, and so forth, and help them deal with all the documents and data that they have to round up and in some instances disclose as part of those matters. So it's a very uh, technologically intensive practice, but it's um, also a very rewarding practice because I get to work on all sorts of cases, employment, antitrust, uh, construction, arbitration, as I was mentioning to you before we started the recording, all kinds of different, uh, all kinds of different disputes and proceedings. And it really does stretch me. I, I have to learn about the underlying factors of the proceeding. I have to keep abreast of what's going on with the relevant technologies. So I have to know, for instance, how Microsoft Teams or Zoom maintains chat records, right? And whether those can be collected and need to be collected in the context of a particular litigation. So um, it's really an exciting time to be practicing the kind of law that I practice. And I get to work with teams of amazing people around the world to do it. I have, I have so many follow-up questions, but it's all above my... <laughs> Hey, great. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the lawyer stuff out of it for a little bit. Um, this is probably not a conversation that anybody listening asked for, but I'm, I'm curious as someone who lives in, in Pittsburgh, I don't, I don't know if you're a sports fan of any of the teams in Pittsburgh. Are you? You know, that's a funny question. So my wife undoubtedly is. All my kids have been born in Pittsburgh and are raised in Pittsburgh. So they're diehard fans. Now myself, I grew up in West Virginia, right? We don't have professional sports teams. So I love college football. I love WVU. But as far as professional sports, I'm just not as into it as the other members of my family. But it also gives me a good reason to sort of razzle about it whenever the Pittsburgh teams lose. Fair, fair. Because uh, one thing that I was just, I was thinking about earlier just today when I was looking at you in Pittsburgh and, and whatnot, like the, the name, the Pittsburgh Steelers makes a lot of sense because it's a massive steel producing city historically. But what does anything in Pittsburgh have to do with either the Pirates or the Penguins? <laughs> oh, I think that's a great question. I'm not really sure. I don't, I'm, there's probably some history around it. Yeah. I, I have no idea. I'm sure some, maybe somebody listening to this knows or, you know, I maybe could Google it too. That's also on the table. <laughs> um, <laughs> but going back to, I guess, things more relevant now. Um, can you talk a little bit about like, your journey as a brother that's led you to where you are now in running for the Board of Trustees? Sure. Well, I mean, I guess it all starts with band for all of us, right? So in junior high and high school, I joined the band. I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I found uh, the people who I feel are, are really my community. You know, I, I, like I said, I grew up in a small town in Southern West Virginia. Um, the band at the junior high and the middle and the uh, high school were pretty well known and well regarded. So it seemed like something that I could join and try to excel at. But what I found really to be most important were all the amazing people that were in that group. And um, uh, when I was in high school, when I was uh, in 10th grade, my dad died unexpectedly at work. 
and he worked at a coal processing plant and uh, was caught in an accident there. And it was that community of band people that really held me up during that time. And uh, that's meant a lot to me ever since. Uh, when I went to WVU, I joined the band there. Obviously, it's a pretty well-known band. And uh, it's got the same amazing people that were in my high school band. And that's what I found through meeting people through Kappa Kappa Psi across so many different bands is that we're all different. We all come from different experiences and play different kinds of music and all of these things. But the people here are so amazing. And um, thinking back to my experience with my dad and even just in the past year, my mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease. And it was the same people, the same band people and brothers of Kappa Kappa Psi and sisters of Tau Beta Sigma that reached out to me uh, during that time too. So it's the connections with those people that are so giving and amazing that always draws me back to our fraternity and helps me in every aspect of my life. You know, um, I met my wife through Kappa Kappa Psi. She's a brother from Omicron at WVU as well. So I have the fraternity to thank for my family, you know, so many of my friendships and, and connections with people have been built over decades with this fraternity and they continue to be made. I mean, I've met amazing brothers over the past five or six years uh, through continued work with the fraternity and I've been so lucky to consider some of them my mentors still, even though they're maybe a decade or two younger than me. So um, while I was initiated in the spring of 1997, I always think I'm still becoming the best brother I can be. So it's an experience that um, means a lot to me. And uh, I, I really try to take to heart all the time to continue striving for the highest in, in everything I do. And I think that's probably one of the best lessons you can take away from, from our organization. So uh, after you became an active brother, after you, you were involved a little bit and then became chair of the alumni board, correct? In 2015? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So while I was an active brother, you know, I, I got to have so many great experiences in my chapter. I was parliamentarian there, and then I became a district officer in the Northeast District as secretary treasurer. And then, uh, you know, obviously I graduated, went to law school. My wife and I became involved in starting the Omicron Alumni Association after the Alumni Association was restructured. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of our entrance into alumni life and becoming life members. Uh, we both served as colony advisors for the colony at Robert Morris University here in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And then I applied to be a member of the Kappa Kappa Psi Alumni Association Board of Directors and was chosen in 2015. And then in 2017, I became its chair. Um, I, was I really right. I was half right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, really close. So um, that was an amazing experience, too. Um, I really feel like the years I spent with the Alumni Association, we were able to get so much done. Um, I helped draft its first constitution. And then in 2019, we went through our first set of revisions. 
So in 2017, I became the chair of the Kappa Kappa Psi Alumni Association Board of Directors. And we had a really great, outstanding group of directors at uh, that biennium. And we were able to accomplish so many things together. Um, the biennium before, I helped draft the very first constitution for the Alumni Association. And then the, the next biennium, when I was chair, we went through our first round of revisions to it. We also uh, set up a series of programs at each district convention to ensure that every one of those conventions had alumni-centered programming, right? So that the alumni in attendance didn't feel like they just had to sit in the back of the room while the actives did all their stuff. There were specific programs geared just for them. And it was the first biennium where every single district convention had that in place and um, was structured so it would be sustainable so that in the future, every district convention would have that kind of alumni center program, which is so important as actives uh, go through the, their years as uh, undergraduate students and active members of our fraternity to see alumni still involved and to see that there's a place for them every time they want to return. Uh, we managed our budget, our expenditures very closely so that those two biennia I served on the board were the first two where we were pretty much financially independent and uh, particularly for that second biennium when I served as chair. We did so many great programs. We formed a partnership with the Association of Concert Bands, which is now giving uh, money to a new program we started when I was chair too, uh, the Max Mitchell Fund for NIV musicians. In our very first year, we raised thousands of dollars for those NIV musicians to get grants. So I'm really proud of the work that we were able to accomplish together on the Alumni Association Board of Directors. And I think it set up a great trajectory for our alumni life and honorary brothers to find amazing ways to continue to participate and new opportunities to serve college bands. So at the now after uh, becoming chair of the board and, and finishing out that term, um, now again, you're running for, for board of trustees. So can you talk a little bit about how either that experience uh, as alumni chair and your professional experience too lends itself to the board of trustees? Sure. Well, the board of trustees in our fraternity serves a pretty unique role. Mm -hmm. It isn't the national council and it's not meant to be sort of a second national council to second guess all the decisions they make about programming and initiatives. It instead serves as a conservator for our fraternity. It manages the strategic vision of our fraternity and helps to create and implement long-term planning. So uh, unlike my service on the Kappa Kappa Psi Alumni Association Board of Directors, I wouldn't be necessarily framing new programs, but what I would instead be doing is serving as a trustee, a conservator of the fraternity, and making sure that our long-term planning, our strategic planning, lines up with the programs that are underway. Now, I think this is a really unique time for Kappa Kappa Psi for many reasons, primarily because of the pandemic that uh, limited how our college bands could perform and interact and how our brothers and chapters go about their uh, undertaking their service, their obligations and their work. Mm -hmm. um, I think as we emerge from this pandemic, it's a unique opportunity to sort of jumpstart how we serve college bands, how we promote the college band movement, and how we help each other grow 
as individual brothers and as chapters. Mm -hmm. I think now is a really important time to invest in our active brothers, in our active chapters with new programming that will help jumpstart our emergence from the pandemic and enable our sustainability for the next century. So I think in many situations, you know, we've gone so long in sort of an even keeled, predictable environment for college bands. And what we saw over the past year or year and a half through the pandemic was that we're in a moment of change and we need to invest in our active brothers and in our active chapters to make sure that they can come out of this in the best possible footing and take on as many of the new opportunities that will arise over the next year or two. Mm-hmm. So I think unlike most prior boards of trustees where our long-term planning and strategic planning was focused on how do we make sure that the fraternity will be successful 10 years, 20 years, 50 years down the road. I think now is a unique moment where the board of trustees should be focused on how immediate investments in success for active brothers and active chapters can enable that success further down the road. We have a unique moment here in front of us and we really should be devoted as much as we can to providing the time, money, energy, and resources to those active brothers and chapters. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you talked about how Kappa Kappa Psi is facing perhaps more significant challenges now than perhaps, perhaps ever before as we're recovering from COVID. Uh, so you, you talked about wanting to invest in the act, in active membership. Is, is that the only, only role of the board of trustees in helping the fraternity to rebuild or are there other things that you think fit into how, how you can help the national council and the, and the active membership uh, rebuild from this uh, two years? <laughs> right. Right. Well, uh, like I said, I don't think it's necessarily the role of the board of trustees to design programs, right? We have a vice president for programs. We have a national council that will determine the types of programs that should be brought forward to help our active brothers and our chapters. But I think the board of trustees role is to make sure that we can pursue as many of those programs as we can with an eye towards sustainability. So making sure that we can continue programs that need to be continued long-term and with an eye toward conservatorship, right? That we don't misplace or misdesignate resources, time and attention to certain programs that could make us vulnerable in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say, you know, as a member of the national leadership team, I think all of us, on the board of trustees would be providing feedback, encouragement, and insight. And I think my unique experiences as an attorney with my background in litigation, legal risk, records management, and data privacy, as well as my experience serving on another nonprofit board um, will give a lot of uh, experience and, and insight that can be leveraged to help our other national leaders get the necessary advice and guidance that will help inform what kinds of programs they want to move forward with. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, So like the outside of recovering from, from COVID, I would, I would argue that perhaps the the next biggest contemporary circumstance that Kappa Kappa Psi is facing is 
a, a push to become more diverse, equitable, and inclusive as a fraternity. So mm-hmm. as a member of the board of trustees, like wh- what do you think the role of the board is in ensuring that Kappa Kappa Psi is equitable and inclusive long-term? Yeah, you know, I think that's a great question. First of all, I want to ground our discussion about DEI issues in our fraternity values, right? Because we have a set of values related to integrity, related to how we treat each other that really should be grounding these DEI initiatives. And to the extent we've failed to take DEI issues seriously and approach them honestly in the past, I think that's a failing of our values too. So I I don't think it's appropriate to try to superimpose DEI issues as an additional consideration. Those issues should be central to how we live our values as an organization. Um, To that end, I think the best way to approach DEI issues, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues throughout the fraternity is to live those values in tandem with our founding fraternity values in every aspect of what we do. So obviously a a lot of attention has to be given to how we recruit, how we retain, and how we encourage new leadership among our active brothers. you, you know, I come from a, a big global law firm, and I can tell you that my experiences there have really informed me on how organizations like a law firm and many of our clients in the private sector are taking on these DEI issues. Um, we look to, to form partnerships with others who are similar, similarly situated. So we understand what others are doing, what best practices are emerging, what initiatives seem to be most successful, because we understand that all the intelligence related to DEI issues isn't caught within our own single organization, but instead we can help each other grow better. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned from that experience for our fraternity. I think we should be looking not just to um, other fraternal or sororal organizations, or not just to other entities in the higher education space, but to all kinds of entities and organizations throughout the private sector to see what best practices are emerging. Mm -hmm. Um, At K&L Gates, we've defined specific committees. We've taken on a lot of different initiatives to encourage our attorneys to think about how we recruit summer associates and new associates, how we support people in all sorts of different communities, including people of color, including LGBTQ communities and so forth, as they proceed through uh, the associate rungs uh, on a path to partnership. And I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from those kinds of experiences in law and how we treat individual band members, how we attract them, how we retain them, and how we encourage them and facilitate their growth as leaders within their band programs and within their chapters. Um, So beyond just recruitment and retention issues and and leadership issues, I think we have to live our values in other aspects of what our fraternity does as well. So our fraternity is an employer. You know, we have to think about how we consider DEI issues as an employer and how we treat our employees, how we create a warm and welcoming 
employment atmosphere and how we provide HR resources to our employees that provide them a safe place to work and help mitigate risks that are related to all sorts of issues. I mean, one thing to consider as an employer is that so much workplace violence is actually a direct result of domestic and or intimate partner violence coming to the workplace. Um, I'm the pro bono coordinator of the KNL Gates Pittsburgh office, and we support so many pro bono projects from uh, representing victims of revenge porn to helping transgender people change their names on their legal documents. Uh, to advising the FBI about sex trafficking and particularly vulnerable populations, including people of color and transgender youth. And one of the pro bono projects that I'm most involved with is our Protection from Abuse program, which uh, provides representation to victims of domestic and intimate partner violence who are seeking protection from abuse orders. So the it's in many places, they're called restraining orders so that they're uh, abusers cannot contact them, cannot harass them, and have to stay away from them and potentially their children uh, for a number of years. Um, what I found through that work is, is, again, so much workplace violence is actually a direct result of intimate partner and or domestic violence coming to the workplace. And there are actually free programs offered to employers to help give their employees guidance about how to recognize that kind of domestic and intimate partner violence and how to make sure people stay safe in the workplace. And I think if we're looking out for each other, if we're caring for each other in the way that our values mandate, then we have to consider how to make our workplace as safe and as welcoming as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. Those same kinds of considerations should take uh, a, really a front and center role, not just as we serve as employers, but as we invest our money, we should be picking investments that align with our fraternal values every time. We should be partnering with vendors, including the hotels and convention centers we use for conventions to make sure that they are aligned with our fraternal values mm -hmm. and that the sites of those conventions accommodate what we stand for as an organization. So I think all of these aspects of what our fraternity does and what our fraternity is should be informed by these DEI issues that, again, are grounded in our foundational values as a fraternity. So yeah, going back to what you just said, like, so I, I guess you're saying in, in an ideal world, if we are living 100% to our values, DEI issues should more or less not not exist as, as as well as they do if we are ideally living to our values. I, I don't know if they would not exist because we're all flawed people, right? Individually, we make mistakes all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the great things about our fraternity is that we can help each other get better as individual people mm -hmm. and help each other do better things as a group. I think the pursuit of more honest and more assertive DEI initiatives is fully aligned with our fraternal values. Mm -hmm. And when we don't live up to everything we could be doing to enhance the experience of all members and all communities within our brotherhood, then we're failing those fraternal values, right? So 
I, I can't say that in an ideal world where, you know, all of our pistons were being hit for all of our fraternal values that DEI wouldn't be a consideration because I don't think that's true. I think it's something that is insulated. I think diversity, equity, and inclusion issues feel far away for many of our brothers. Um, and, and we can't maintain that. Our, our fraternity won't succeed as much as it can if many of our members feel insulated from the realities of the experiences of other communities within our fraternities. So I think giving attention and really focusing attention on DEI beyond just performative acts, you know, frankly, social media posts and announcements aren't enough. We have to take real actions. And I've been uh, so encouraged by seeing some of what particular chapters are doing. I know I, I saw that Alpha Omega here at the University of Pittsburgh uh, was taking some very concrete steps about how they could uh, integrate more of their service with communities in the Pittsburgh area that are otherwise underserved. Mm -hmm. um, so those kinds of concrete actions where brothers, chapters, and hopefully districts in our whole fraternity will take an eye toward focusing their service, taking on the real issues behind the need to embrace the full diversity of our membership and to expand the kinds of service we do so that every member of our local communities, every member of our campus communities feel welcomed and embraced in what we do as far as the college band movement. And, and we are firmly and assertively connecting ourselves particularly to underserved communities who may not have pre-existing connections to our fraternity or our bands. So I think, I think just learning from each other, learning from how chapters are taking on those really affirmative steps to go beyond just saying we want to pursue diversity, equity, inclusion, and taking real efforts to find ways to connect ourselves to these communities, to help bring people in who wouldn't otherwise have felt welcomed. I think that's the most important thing we can be doing. Thank you for that, for that answer, Daniel. Uh, I guess the last, like, of the more serious questions that I, that I want to ask you is, is, is there, is there anything else uh, from your, your platform or what you see from what the fraternity needs uh, that you want to talk about um, from the perspective of a board of trustee candidate? Yeah, you know, I think I think the DEI issue conversation and the pandemic conversation are kind of aligned in one way. I think both of them show that we always have to be building trust within our brotherhood and that when people feel that trust has not been earned, then we run into problems with people feeling that they're kind of on the outside, that they aren't excluded. And so much of our fraternity is about building a circle of brotherhood where nobody is excluded once you're brought in, that we, we take these oaths to each other to be there for each other, that, so that no brother feels outside of a quote-unquote inner circle. And I think the best ways to build trust are to be honest about past mistakes to be transparent about how we're going to do better 
and when necessary, bring in outside expertise to show us how we can do better. Because it's uh, those kinds of skills and, and lessons aren't always found uh, within our current leadership or our brotherhood and its members. So uh, let me give you some examples. I think, you know, so many of our active brothers don't really understand how, how money is spent uh, through our fraternity. Mm-hmm. And as stewards of a lot of money that's coming in through active members dues, I think we have an obligation to kind of educate brothers, especially active brothers who are just starting college about how to read our financial statements, how to understand what all that information means. I mean, when you come out of high school, I think very few, very few students have an understanding of how to interpret a financial statement or a profit and loss statement. And I think educating brothers about what those figures mean, explaining to them how resources are directed and why they're directed that way, and being able to break down for them with a little bit more granularity what those numbers mean can help build trust in among the active membership so they understand really what their dues are going for. Because I've heard from several active brothers at different district conventions that they just don't understand it. And I don't think it's a personal failing of them. It's just not something they've been educated about. So I think for active brothers to feel more in control about decision-making when they come to national conventions and to feel a greater sense of trust about what their national leaders are doing and how they're allocating their their dues payments. I think that kind of education would be really prudent and helpful to all the members as they go through different organizations and in their careers later in life. Second, when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion issues, I think we should be finding partners both within the higher education and fraternity spaces, but also outside of those spaces, more partnerships within our communities, local communities, to help us understand what each of us can be doing. Again, as individual brothers, as active chapters, and as broader aspects of our fraternity at the district and national level, how we can be best pursuing an expansion of inclusion within the college band movement and within our fraternity. So I also think that to the extent our decisions about discipline at the chapter or individual brother level, or our decisions about recruitment and colonization uh, can come under some additional review. I think that would make sense for a, an external party, whether it's a consultant, a law firm, or another expert to provide some review and examination of those past decisions so we can have an objective look I, uh, about what we can be doing better and what lessons we can learn from any failures we've made in the past. I, I think we need to have a very clear perspective about any mistakes that have been made in the past and how we can do better next time. I, I, I don't see how we can do that without some external uh, review. And I think having some objective expertise brought to bear on those past decisions is really important. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Daniel, again, for your answers on, on these questions. Um, as I, I kind of mentioned to you earlier, I, I'm 
ending each of these board of trustees interviews with a, a segment that's that's unique to you uh and hopefully a little more lighthearted and uh easier to easier to digest than uh you know edat and all of the other litigation stuff that, you, <laughs> that you're talking about um so i actually have, I have two smaller segments for you and first off just because i'm i'm curious i have a few west virginia questions that i, I just wanted to throw your way okay well uh, hopefully I do okay. When I was in eighth grade, I was, uh, I did pass the test in West Virginia state history. That's like a competition throughout the state. And I was knighted as a knight of the golden horseshoe, which is like a big deal in West Virginia junior highs. Just so you know, I hope I don't mess this up. Well, that already takes away one of the questions. Cause I was going to ask if <laughs> what's like, what's, what's the deal with that, that test and being knighted. <laughs> That's um, hilarious. Yeah. Most people outside West Virginia have no idea. But yeah, if you do well on this test that's statewide, you go to Charleston and the governor knights you with a big sword as either a knight or a lady of the golden horseshoe. It's a, it's a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the first one that I'm, I'm just curious about in West Virginia, how big of a cultural phenomenon is John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads? Well, it's pretty huge. Um, it's very big for West Virginia University students, right? So it's a song the band plays on the field for pregame. Uh, they play it at the end of every game. Um, and many people stay and sing. I can tell you that um, as a native West Virginian, I do sing it anytime it comes on. And I expect others to sing it as well if they're in my company. Um, yeah, it's it's a huge deal. And even though it wasn't written about West Virginia, I don't know if you've heard that, but it actually was not written about West Virginia. I think it was written about Virginia, but um, it's been adopted by everybody in the state. So there's no taking it away from us now. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, next one is, what is Bridge Day? Oh, Bridge Day. Okay, so that's actually close to where I grew up. So the New River Gorge Bridge, is across the New River, which, by the way, is like a, a really ancient river. Uh, also, um, the bridge itself was, is, was the longest arch bridge in the world. Now it's the second largest because they built a bigger one in China. So now they just call it the Western Hemisphere's largest arch bridge. <laughs> um, but they closed the bridge down on, on one Saturday and they let pedestrians onto it and people, you know, repel or parachute or bungee jump off of it. Um, I actually have never gone to a bridge day, uh, because my dad, when I was an infant, had a dream that I fell off the bridge. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I'm even telling this story, but yeah, he had a dream. I fell off the bridge. So I've never, I, I, my parents never took me. I've just never gone. So yeah, it's like a whole thing in my family. <laughs> Man. Uh, another just West Virginia trivia question. What, why is June 20th such a big day? Well, that's the day that West Virginia was founded as a state. Okay. And is there like just big celebrations or anything there? Is it like a... Just well, I mean, state? so West Virginia's history, I mean, we were the only state to sort of become a state because of the Civil War um, and our secession from Virginia. So it's just, you know, kind of a, a, a proud day for West Virginians. It's, uh, you know, West Virginians tend to be very... Uh, focused on being independent and self-sufficient. 
So I think it's a day to kind of celebrate that, yeah, we got out of the confines of Virginia and we're on our own now. So I, I think that's why it appeals to so many people from the state. Gotcha. And uh, one, one last question for West Virginia. This is actually a, a trivia question that I hope you know the answer. Yeah, um, me too. Is which, this is a Kappa Kappa Psi West Virginia question, actually. Which, okay. which chapter in the Kappa Kappa Psi has the most uh, J. Lee Burke winners? Oh, is it Omicron? It is Omicron. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know quite a few of them. There's Adam Cantley. So Adam went to the same high school I did. I graduated with his sister and he graduated with mine. Uh, we were also roommates for a year at WVU. Uh, let's see. There's also Vicki Seeley, Vicki Lancaster Seeley. She was a brother in the class behind me, and she is currently a professor at WVU in math. Huh. Um, so, yeah, those are two I was in the chapter with active as an active brother. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there were like 13 or something like that. Or a, <laughs> like, like a, a sh- shocking number for any chapter, but <laughs> something I just thought was kind of interesting. Um this the second and perhaps a slightly bigger section uh, here is naturally related to you as a lawyer. Okay. <laughs> I think it's, it's gotta be, I'm trying to do things that are yeah, unique to you. Everyone knows Daniel Miller is a lawyer. <laughs> uh, so I have a, a list of statements about being a lawyer and I want you to tell me if it's accurate or if it's a complete myth or mis- mis- misconception and just give you, give you a chance to react to it. All right. Um, so the first one is that some big law firms require you to work a minimum of 80 hours a week. Uh, you know, I don't think that's true. Um, I mean, I have worked at a big law firm my entire legal career and nobody expected me to work 80 hours a week every week. Now I say that every week because there have undoubtedly been times I've worked 80 hours a week, right? Um, now, not all of that work is billable to a particular client, right? Um, but uh, between your billable work and your non-billable work to get up to speed on new advancements in the market or new technologies, it's easy to work 80 hours. And I, I mean, I, I can't say like I pride myself on working 80 hours a week and I don't think I do that every week or even close to every week. But what you find is when you really enjoy your work, you're always wanting to learn a little bit more about it, right? So parts of it don't even seem like work. Like yesterday, I had a conversation with uh, one of the lawyers over at Kids Voice, which is a Pittsburgh organization that helps represent at-risk youth. And we have a pro bono project with them to help youth who are facing summary offenses for things like harassment or trespassing. Because if we don't help them address that, and they can't pay the fine, then they can get a warrant for their arrest, which could affect them much later in life. Um, so helping out at an organization like that doesn't feel like work. I mean, it, I guess it's work. It's part of what I do. But it's also, one, really interesting to see how we can help our community partners in this way. And two, it feels it feels necessary, right? So somebody needs to do this. So it just, I, I, I wouldn't even count that toward like, 40 or 60 or 80 hours. It's just something that needs done. Gotcha. And you mentioned the term like yeah, billable hours in there. So <laughs> right. like, many lawyers charge their billable hours, not as by the hour, but by like each six minute interval. 
Oh, yes. I, that's so funny. Yes, I track my time to six minute intervals because that's a tenth of an hour. And I do that every day, every day. <laughs> yeah. So that one's true. That, one's- that is absolutely true. And it, in fact, if you're an attorney uh, in private practice and you're not doing that, you really should because you might mess up what you're billing and that's unethical. So. All right. Next up is uh, lawyers have a huge love for long Latin phrases. Uh, sometimes true. Although I have to say, you know, um, law, the practice of law, I think, has really gotten away from um, use of long Latin phrases or technical jargon that the average person cannot understand. I think there really has been a movement to make briefs, filings, court opinions as digestible as possible for the general public. So, you know, it, when I'm writing something that's going to go to a court, I try to stay pretty far away from that kind of language. Also, I mentioned before that my practice is pretty technical. So um, if I go before a judge and try to explain metadata or uh, how much it costs for terabytes of information to be processed, many judges will, on the federal bench or in state courts will not really understand all that. So I've developed a set of analogies and, and assumptions and conversions that make it more digestible. So because a lot of times you're talking to people who are not experts on the technical side of things. So you want to make it as easy for them to understand. Right. And if, if you don't understand it, then it's, it's not persuasive, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, next one is that most lawsuits never even come close to reaching a courtroom. And most lawyers rarely argue in front of a judge or jury. Absolutely true. And in fact, if um, I like to think if I do my job correctly, then sort of technical nitpicky issues that might arise during discovery never get broached by a judge, right? Because if I do my job correctly, then we can make the discovery process in any litigation really as smooth as possible. A lot of discovery is sort of negotiation with opposing counsel on how you exchange documents and what's within the scope of relevance or what what we can agree about how to do a privilege log or, or whether we should consider backup tapes in each of our discovery processes and so forth. So, you know, so much of what I do is both helping my client with its particular issues, but also being able to negotiate with other parties. I'm pretty technical things. So again, if I'm able to do, to, to do my job correctly, then hopefully we won't have to come before a court and ask for its guidance. We'll have already resolved all the issues related to discovery before that. Interesting. And the, the last one that I have here is kind of a bit of a testimonial from somebody saying, I graduated from law school six years ago with $250,000 in debt, but after, but after years of hard work and tens, tens of thousand dollars in payments, I can officially say I now owe $315,000 in debt. <laughs> well, that sounds awful. Um, I, I hope that's not true. Um, so yeah, my own college debt experience kind of goes like this. So at WVU, I, I was able to have scholarships that basically paid my way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, at UVA. So I, I went to WVU law for one year and then transferred to UVA for my last two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first year at WVU law, I had funded through scholarships. And then my UVA uh, 
law school experience was not funded by scholarships because I was a transfer student. So I had to get loans for that, which I'm still paying. <laughs> Although I, I had four, like you get two each year, basically. So I've paid off one of the four. And this year I pay off the second of the four and then I'll just have two left. So <laughs> so again, absolutely true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would encourage anybody considering law school to think about that one, what kind of law they want to practice, and two, how to balance sort of the uh, reputation and and rating of that law school and what it's best known for delivering to its students against the kind of debt load that you would anticipate after graduation. Um, law schools can be really expensive, but at the same time, they offer unique opportunities that really no other kind of education can offer. And, you know, at least from my perspective, it was really fun. I mean, you get to talk about ideas about regulation and policy with people who are also striving to be as informed about it as they can be. So uh, it was a great time. And I, I really loved law school. So Nice. All right. Well, that was the last one that I had. Um, so Daniel, thank you for being here today and for continuing your efforts to, to try and serve this fraternity even further. Uh, next week, we'll be back with Will Johnston, who will be interviewing our final candidate for National Vice President for Student Affairs. But until then, thank you all for listening to KKSI Presents. Thank you, Jack. Mm-hmm.